This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. We're so trained that if we don't have something new and exciting and unfamiliar happening regularly, we can easily lose interest and easily be bored. In other words, we don't do repetition very well as a people. We, we find ourselves um, losing interest very quickly when something becomes repetitive for us and we are looking for something new, something exciting, some adventure yet untapped. We don't do repetition very well. And that's a challenge when it comes to spiritual growth. Because spiritual growth, unless you're a new Christian, so this doesn't count if you're a new Christian, but unless you're a new Christian, spiritual growth doesn't happen typically by just new, exciting, never heard of, never thought of ideas before. Christian growth happens through repetition. Christian growth happens through rehearsing the gospel daily and throughout the day. The message that you've understood or known since the moment of conversion is the same message where in repeated exposure and thought and consideration and meditation produces growth. Now, we learn more about the gospel. We learn more about God. We get insight from different angles and different application to be sure. So I'm not saying there's nothing new, but it is the rehearsal and the going deeper into the familiar that produces Christian growth and not just an onslaught of new ideas. So repetition, when it comes to studying God and who he is and what he's like and what he's done, repetition isn't meant to create apathetic familiarity. Repetition is... Well, it it exists to help us to go deeper so that we are more awed, we are more stunned by what we already know, in part, who God is and what he has done. And as we hit the midpoint in this book, a word about repetition may be helpful because Ecclesiastes unapologetically repeats the same things over and over and over again. And he does that for our instruction. That is the design of God. We're halfway through the book and the danger, a little bit more than halfway, and the danger is, the danger for me is to read a passage and say, didn't he say that already? And to check out. The danger is like we respond to everything else in our culture, got that, next. But God intends for the same themes to cyclically repeat in this book. And so the themes like life is vanity, life is a vapor, life has no meaning apart from God, he repeats that over and over. Themes like the fear of God, themes like the importance of the sovereignty of God are repeated throughout. And these themes are repeated because God wants us to understand them more fully. Because maybe God thinks we didn't get it in chapter 1. And so we need to hear it again from a different angle. So that repetition doesn't dull our hearts, but that repetition inspires us to see more deeply and see at a different angle and see with a different example what we've already been told before. That God is glorious, that there is no joy found outside of him. That, that God is to be feared 
because of his greatness and that life apart from him is meaningless. So it's to that end that I want to pray as we open up this text. And if you've been here since week one, we read some words that sound very familiar to what we've already heard. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would guard us against the tragedy of growing familiar with you. We pray that you would protect us in our Christian world and in our Christian culture and our Christian books and our Christian Bibles and our Christian friends and our Christian lingo. We pray that you would guard us from the fearful event of being apathetic towards you because we've heard it and seen it. We've been there and done that. God, we pray that you would, that you would stir our hearts, that you would astound us afresh, that you would open our eyes to your word to see, see you in, in new ways, Lord, that we would understand you more deeply. And that as we even rehearse the familiar, we wouldn't say stay shallow, but by rehearsing the familiar, we'd go deeper into knowing you and what you've done. Lord, we can't accomplish this. We're easily distracted, but your spirit can. And so it's our request that your spirit would come and teach us this morning and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read uh, verses 15 through 29. That's our text today out of chapter 7. But I'm going to start in verse 13. I'm going to read two verses from last week, 13 and 14, and then I'll read today's passage. Verse 13, chapter 7. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but that they have sought out many schemes. 
Well, last week we closed with talking about two primary themes in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 was about consider the work of God who can straighten what he has made crooked. So it was a picture of the fact that there are things that happen in our lives that we view as crooked. They're not the pathway that we would pick. They're bent. They're things that we can't do anything about. There's certain illnesses that we can't uh, do anything about. There's certain relationships that break down that we can't do anything about. There are certain financial circumstances that find their way to us. So there are things that happen in life that are crooked that God brings into our life, and we really can't do anything about those things but trust him. Verse 14, he says, the day of prosperity and the day of adversity both come, but God has made them both. And so whether we are in a day of prosperity or a day of adversity, we are to trust God. So he's talking about the sovereignty of God, which means God is in control of all things. God rules over all things. And that's a very easy topic for us to talk about sort of flippantly. Oh yeah, God's in control. Uh, and just sort of toss that out. But when, when we hit real-life situations or when we make real-life observations, sometimes that's a hard truth to live with. And so he goes from there. The day of prosperity is from God. The day of adversity is from God. Ultimately, we're to trust him in both of them. Um, and, and he's talking about the, the crooked, crooked things that happen in our lives. He's talking about prosperity, adversity, God's in charge. And then he gives a real-life example, which, which basically says, but this one's a hard, this is hard to figure out how this all works out in real life. Verse 15, in my vain life. Now, when he's talking about that, he's often talking about life under the sun without God. He's talking about just an observation, a human observation about life. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So he's saying God is sovereign, but when I look around at life, I see things that aren't fair. I see things that aren't right. When I look around at life, here's an observation that I make, Solomon says, the preacher. He says, there are people that live for God, that are trying to help other people, that want to do right, and they die young in their righteousness. And there are other people that are scoundrels. They are cheating and lying, fornicating, harming other people, killing, stealing, and they live. God gives them years upon years upon years. They just keep on living so that they can what? Do more evil. Now, God is sovereign, but that doesn't make sense to me, in other words. He's saying, when you look at that, how does that all work out? I remember when I was in high school, there was a guy in our high school, his name was Chris. I think he was a year older than I was. And uh, he was a godly guy. He was a well-rounded guy, student, athlete, um, uh, you know, well-liked guy. He kind of had things together. He, he loved the Lord, and he was unashamed about his testimony. He would tell people about Jesus. He was of, of a rarity in a, in a public high school, a vocal, uh, a vocal Christian for his faith. And uh, I remember he got cancer. Uh, and it may have been his senior year, my junior year. I wasn't close to him, <clears throat> so I only visited him once, but I remember visiting him in the hospital. And there was a guy that just oozed potential, oozed potential. I mean, how many people could he have led to the Lord? What, what, what difference could he have made in the marketplace or in the church or wherever God would have called him to be? And I remember visiting him in there in his hospital, and he had a 
big fat Bible on the side there that he was just reading. He was playing his Keith Green music, which dates me and, and dates you if you just if you know who that is. But he's playing. He's a Christian singer from a long time ago. So he's playing this Keith Green music and he's smiling and um, he's just trusting God. He's witnessing to the people that are taking care of him, and he dies. Not while I'm there, but later he dies. And here was a guy in the prime. His whole life was in front of him. How do you figure that? How do you figure that when a guy who I mentioned once earlier in this series, thinking about Solomon, how, how do you mention that when you've got a guy like Hugh Hefner, who's in his mid-80s, trouncing around in his pajamas in his mansion with 25-year-old scantily clad models hanging on him, a guy who broke through and uh, began really an industry in our country that exploits women and feeds the lusts of men. How how is a guy like that in his mid-80s living the good life, quote-unquote, with women and money and everything in life, sustained it year after year to keep purveying the same lifestyle and keep advertising the same good life when Chris dies his senior year of high school. Now, we can look at this and say, well, that's easy. I mean, we know good people die. The good die young. We know good people die young. We know bad people live. That, that's no real surprise. It's easy for us to say that, but we need to think back at what the Bible actually teaches. And this is why this, this kind of thing is a, minis- uh, a, a mystery. Think about the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that God is giving you. And Unless we think that's just an Old Testament Idea. Think about Ephesians 6 in the New Testament, where this is repeated. Paul writes, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, Paul says. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And so there, even in the Old Covenant, in the Bible, there is this, this idea, generally speaking, that God blesses the righteous. Deuteronomy 5 is an interesting chapter to read because uh, there the same thing is said. Basically, the theme of Deuteronomy 5 is as they are about to go into the promised land, obey the Lord that you may live long in the land. And God will defeat his enemies. They won't live long and you will live long if you obey the Lord. I mean, so common is this that the Proverbs, many Proverbs speak of this. Proverbs 3 says that pursue wisdom because in wisdom's right hand is long life, many years. And there's plenty of places in the Bible where we see this theme. But never do we take those ideas and take them separate from the person of God, from the sovereignty of God, and just treat them as formulas, Uh, Kind of as a vending machine. You put in your coins, or it's not coins anymore, now it's dollar bills. You put in your dollar bills, and out comes something. You do this, God will do that. Because even where the scripture teaches the kind of things that I just read, even where the scripture teaches, it never separates it from the truth that God is sovereign and ultimately acts in ways that sometimes are beyond our understanding. That's why the book of Job is written, because people were reading the truths of God and making incorrect assumptions. They thought righteous people don't suffer. So God acts in Job's life, allows Satan to act in Job's life. And we have a book about that, which turns that sort of uh, hard cause and effect 
kind of reality, it turns it on its head. And it takes a righteous man, Job, who's one of the most righteous men to have ever lived. And God lets Satan take everything from him but his wife and his life. So he loses all his money, all his wealth. He loses all of his children, which are killed. He loses his health. He's sitting in boils at one point. And his friends come with him to him with this kind of wisdom that we're talking about right here. And his friends say to him in chapter 4, who that was innocent ever perished? Job, hey, this is the, 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 the group, the community group is coming around to visit you in the hospital. You've lost everything. And we'd just like to remind you that no innocent person's ever experienced what you have experienced. That's what he said. He goes on, they say, or where were the upright cut off? Show me a place where God cuts down a righteous person. They say, as I, he says, as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. If you sow, he's using a, 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 a agricultural metaphor. If you dig up the ground and if you put in the seeds of sin, then you will reap trouble. So Job, if all this has happened to you, we've never seen this happen to a righteous man. But we've seen this as the pattern, the general pattern of life. This always happens to unrighteous people. So this must be a result of your sin. And we see that that's not the case because it is God who has allowed all of this to happen so that God could reveal himself to Job at the end and basically say, you don't know much. Where were you when I created everything? I am beyond, uh, beyond you. And I am free to act in a way that brings me ultimate glory. And, and Job worships. He said, before I knew about God, knew these truths about God, now I really know him. And that's what he learned. That, that's the purpose of that book is to turn a sort of mechanistic, you put in your coins, you get out your soda type of relationship with God. See, the preacher says, everything's not as simple as it seems. I, I have seen righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So when we see that sort of a paradox, a, a, this, what he's saying is a truth that, that contrasts with common understanding, what should we do when we see that? Well, one option is when we see the righteous suffer, the one, one would be like Job's friends to increase our own righteousness. Maybe we just need to try harder Maybe Job didn't really try hard enough. Maybe Job had some hidden sin. Maybe it wasn't what it really appeared to be. So when bad things happen or we see the righteous suffer, maybe we should be more righteous because if we live more righteously, if we have more faith, if we speak our faith, if we cling on to God, if we really trust God and we really walk righteously, then maybe we won't suffer in the same way. Maybe... God will make it go well with us. Maybe if we're more righteous, it will go better for us and we will live longer. His answer to that is very surprising because look what he says in verse 16. See, I've seen the righteous die. I've seen the wicked live. Verse 16, be not overly righteous. That's what he says. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Some of you are saying, I have got that verse down. I can't, I can't wait for community group to discuss this. Who's not overly righteous? That is me. I'm going to stand out this week by demonstrating the ways that I'm not righteous and I am obeying that verse. Well, is he saying that we don't really need to obey God? 
course not. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. None of us live up to that, but that's what he called us to. So he's not saying that uh, the, all the commands of scripture are out the window now. Do whatever you want. Is he, is he saying don't be self-righteous? Maybe. He, that, that could be what's at heart there. Don't be a self-righteous person. But I think what he's forbidding here is an over-righteousness, what someone calls a super-righteousness. Here, here's the context of the passage. Verse 13, God makes crooked things that you can't straighten out. Verse 14, righteous sometimes, good people die young, and bad people live a long time. So don't be overly righteous. The context, I believe, would indicate don't live a kind of righteousness that would, that would, that would think or believe or would expect that God owes you something because of your behavior. God brings crooked things to righteous people, bends their pathways sometimes for mysterious reasons. God strikes down young, godly people sometimes. And we don't understand why all of that is. He's the God of, diver- of adversity and the God of prosperity. So don't be righteous and overly wise in the way that I've done something. My righteousness, don't trust your righteousness, which could be self-righteousness, or don't seek to be righteous in the way that God must now do something for me, that, that my behavior would somehow insulate me from suffering, that my behavior would be good enough that I wouldn't die young. Don't think that way about your righteousness. In other words, you cannot live in such a way obediently to manipulate God. You can't do that. I can't do that. I can't live in such a way that God now owes me this. That's sort of the root of the prosperity theology movement is that if you have enough faith, then it's, it's, it's put your coin in, then God will do this, then God owes you this. It, it removes the very personal nature of a sovereign God that rules. And some people who have a lot of faith die young. And some people who give extravagantly uh, have financial trouble. It's not just a a one-to-one relationship. There are general truths in the universe, general truths from the scripture, but we can't take those general truths and somehow make them authoritative as if God no longer has freedom to act in a way that he chooses. So we can't have the idea that if I do the right thing, I won't suffer. If I trust God, he will bless me. Now, maybe we don't think quite that, um, crassly that God owes me. Probably no one's here is going to say God owes me something. But in subtle ways, this kind of creeps its way in that we trust our own righteousness. You know, I have a really bad day. Why are things going so bad today? I mean, I had my quiet time this morning. I thought about God. I prayed. I got up early. I did it right. Why is my whole day terrible? Or my whole day is terrible. I know why my whole day went terrible. It's because I didn't read my Bible and pray this morning. For if I had, my day wouldn't have gone terrible. Because God would have owed me had I done that. And uh, my boss wouldn't have yelled at me. Or I wouldn't have lost my job. Or the kids wouldn't have been off the rails. Or whatever the case may be. Because I had done this, therefore God must do that. So don't be overly righteous, thinking somehow that our righteousness will ensure that things go well for us. That's not a genuine righteousness. Now, on the other hand, do we say, okay, the world's chaotic. The world's chaotic. It does not matter what you do. Whatever you do, 
It does not matter. It, life is random, and uh, you might as well just party it up and have a good time because God's not going to bless you no matter what you do. He may bless you, he may not. He's sort of one way or the other. You can't figure it out. So just go have a good time and see how it works out for you. Is that the way to live? Well, he says, no. Be not overly righteous. But look what else he says, verse 17. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? When he says don't be overly wicked, again, don't feel like, boy, I've got that one down. Uh, He's not saying being somewhat wicked is okay. So he's not advocating this kind of lifestyle which says, you know, don't be too serious about your faith, but don't kill people and steal and sleep around either. So just live somewhere in the middle and God's, that's really what God likes. That's not what he's talking about. Just sort of living in the middle, not being too serious about God, but not being too serious about sin either. That's not what he's saying, but he's saying, don't be overly wicked. Don't pursue a lot. In other words, don't pursue some kind of a lifestyle of wickedness. So he's saying, here's the deal in a paradoxical world where sometimes the righteous suffer and die young and the wicked live and prosper. Don't be super righteous as if your righteousness uh, compels God or in, insulates you from suffering and difficulty and death. So don't, don't be overly trusting in righteousness or super righteous and don't live wickedly as if nothing matters either. Rather, here's what you should do. Instead of being overly righteous, instead of being overly wicked, here's what you should do, verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. What is both of them? Well, I think it's the overly righteous or the overly wicked. So here's the answer. Don't be overly righteous, trusting in your own righteousness. Don't be overly wicked. Fear God. Don't be looking at putting your coin in and it all works out. Don't be counting up what you've done and God owes you. Fear the God of the universe. Realize that God is awesome in character, that God knows everything, can do anything that he wants, is all-powerful, is holy, is gracious, is loving, is glorious, is blazing righteousness, perfect in every detail. He's way more than we've even imagined. Think of that God and trust him because that God sometimes makes things crooked. That God uh, gives the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. That God rules and reigns, knows everything about you, loves you, cares for you, has ordained your life, holds you in his hand, is guiding and protecting you and keeping you through no matter what you face. So fear that God. Fear that God. That's the answer to it. I don't get it. Why did this person not get something better and why did that person not get something worse? Fear God. That's how to cut it in between. That is the message that, that reverberates from Ecclesiastes. Is that he says, look above. If you look under the sun just at life, you'll draw all kinds of wrong conclusions. That joy can be found in possessions and power and pleasure. That's what he's talked about. That's not where we find our ultimate joy. Joy is a gift from God. Look above the sun, so to speak. Joy comes from God. Life comes from God. Fear that God he's drawing our attention to this with just this illustration of why does it happen like this sometimes? He wants us to look and to trust, to live with a reverence and awe, to live with a stunned wonder that we know God, that he cares for us. Living righteously such that we depend on that and expect 
something from God or living wickedly is foolish, but living in the fear of God is wisdom. And wisdom gives strength. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. The fear of God is always tied to wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom in the Bible. And so if we trust God alone, that's the place of wisdom in life. That's the truly wise person, the one who trusts God who rules over all. And that person will be stronger than 10 rulers who are in a city. That means there will be a strength that sustains us because God is the one who sustains us. Trust him. Trust him. Verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Now, this is interesting because when he says, I've seen a righteous man die in his righteousness, he's going to kind of say, now, you know, ultimately, if we really want to talk about righteousness, that being perfection, uh, no one's really righteous anyway. On a relative scale, some are in their actions more godly than others, but there's no one who, with their life and with their, um, their very actions and their words, is completely righteous to the point of never sinning. So he gives that as well. If you really want to trust in one's righteousness, that's what we have to realize. And the other problem with trusting in one's righteousness is, is though we may feel God owes me something because of what I've done, the reality is that all of us fall short. And he gives an example here that's a very common daily example to make the point about uh, about righteousness and not trusting in one's own righteousness. Verse 21, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So then he's he's making this statement about righteousness. He's making a statement about uh, people uh, who live wisely and that there's no one who's ultimately righteous. And he gives an example that we can all relate to, can we not? I mean, we can all relate to this. Um, We've all have heard someone talk about us in an unfavorable way. Maybe you've actually heard them. You've walked in on them. Uh, you, someone forwarded you an email. Someone pocket dialed you and just happened to be discussing you that moment. And you, you, had the, you heard what they had to say. If you're in leadership, this will happen to you. This will happen to you. And this is the kind of example he gives. If you're a leader, don't, don't take everything that people say about you to heart because your servant's going to say some things about you. And, uh, you know, don't get overly worked up about all the stuff that they say. So if you're a supervisor in the marketplace, uh, your job, you're a supervisor, P, those you supervise, I don't know if you know this, but they do talk about you and it's not always good. And uh, so you don't want to take everything you hear to, to, uh, to, to heart because you may catch them saying something bad about you. Last week, we talked about how careful we need to be in our speech towards others. This week, he's talking about how we need to respond when we hear someone talking about us. Basically, he's just saying, don't freak out about that. You don't need to be freaking out about it for a couple of reasons. Number one, you've done the same. That's what he says. Self-righteousness is, I can't believe they said that about me. Who are they to say that about me? Do you know what they do? And blah, blah, blah. What? Wait a minute. You just did the exact same thing. So we've all done that. He's saying, who, who hasn't talked about someone? Who hasn't talked about someone? Who, who hasn't gone home from church and criticized someone? Uh, probably me. I'd be a good target. I can't believe. Did you hear what he said? Oh, did, did you see her? Did you, she didn't even speak to me. Did you see what he was wearing? Did you see what she I couldn't believe it. They were with so-and-so. They were sitting with so-and-so. Well, they didn't even. Blah, 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 yeah. 
you know? And so if you weren't able to hear about that, just don't, don't worry about it too much for two reasons. You've done the same thing and I've done the same thing. So don't be going all super righteous on everybody else when we're made of the same material. I think there's another reason. You may hear your servant saying something. I, th- I think another reason we shouldn't take everything said about us to heart. A, we've done the same. B, what they say, we're worse than what they say, truth be known. Uh, and C, they don't always mean what they say. I, I think I, I've adjusted my thinking in this. I, I think I used to be, uh, you know, overly strict with the verse, out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. Jesus says that. But that verse doesn't mean that everything that comes out of your mouth, you 100% believe that under a court of the law, if you put your hand on the Bible and swore to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, blah, 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 that, that, that's exactly what you would say at that moment. That's just, that's not what that verse means. So you can say things about people that you don't really mean if you were pressed. Somebody says something and we pile on. Well, we're motivated just to pile on. We don't really think all that about the person, perhaps, if we were really pressed. Or we're flippant. We're just not measuring. We're casually from. It doesn't mean the speech isn't sinful. I'm not saying that. It just means we may not mean everything we say. Or we say something in a moment of anger. Who hasn't said something to their spouse or their friend or their children in a moment of anger? Which, when everything cooled off, that's not really in your heart of hearts what you ultimately think about them. That's how your flesh responded in that moment. So it's sinful, but it may not be reflective of everything you really mean. So when you hear people talking about you or it's passed on, I think the scripture tells us the first response is, what? That's not to be the first response. How dare they? Now, what did they tell me? They said, what? That's really not to be the response. The first response is to be, okay, you know, well, let me, let me start with, uh, I do the same thing. So that's where I need to start. I do the same thing. So let me cut them the same grace I would like to be extended to me. Secondly, maybe if they're really pressed, that's not everything they believe about me in their heart. That's one aspect. Thirdly, maybe it's true what they're saying. Maybe it's true, maybe I need to learn. So anyway, you see what he's saying. He's talking about righteousness, and here's a very common example, your speech. And we all sin in that area. The last verses of this passage, he talks like he's done multiple times in the book about his pursuit of wisdom. Verse 23, I said, uh, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been as far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So I wanted to test wisdom. He's giving these various wisdom illustrations. A little bit hard to get a a singular thread of what he's talking about here. It seems like there's several ideas coming together. But he's saying, I I wanted to search wisdom, but it was hard. It was very distant from me. It was too far off and it was too deep. So I really couldn't, couldn't figure out wisdom. Verse 25, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So I set my heart on this course. I wanted to look for wisdom. I wanted to find out the scheme of things. Why do people do what they do? I wanted to find out the ways of men and women. I wanted to figure it all out. But who can really figure it all out is kind of what he says. And then at the end, he sort of gives this, this summary of a few things he learned about humans. Um, verse 26, I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken in by her. So he says, um, 
I, I'm, I'm thinking about all of life. I want to find out why people do the things they do. What is the schemes of life? Why are, why are people act the way that they do? This issue of wisdom. I'm trying to take it all in. I'm trying to give an explanation for the human race and our actions. And this is what I found, and it's worse than death. I found uh, this woman, a certain woman he speaks of, a certain type of woman maybe, and uh, her heart is snares and nets. That's traps, and her hands are fetters. So this certain type of woman, when he gets near her, she traps him. She's got nets. This isn't speaking physically. She doesn't really catch him as prey. But she, she, she draws him in and she catches him. And her, her hands are like fetters. That is shackles. So she chains me. She, she catches me. She ensnares me. She traps me. Is he speaking about a particular lady? I don't think so. Is he speaking about like a type of lady, like Proverbs 7, the loose woman, the immoral woman that calls and invites the, uh, the clueless man into her grips? Uh, he, that could be what's going on here. I, I think he's probably not talking about Proverbs 7, but Proverbs 9, because in Proverbs 9, which the same author likely wrote both here, uh, he talks about lady folly. And he says there's lady wisdom and there's lady folly. So he's talking here about wisdom and foolishness. That's what he says. I wanted to understand all the foolishness that is madness. And in Proverbs, he talks about the fact that he personifies wisdom as a lady. He said there's wisdom, lady, lady wisdom is calling out to you and lady folly is calling out to you. And so he says, you can be wise or you can be foolish. He kind of just tells it like a little story. And he says this lady folly in chapter nine, that she's calling all the simple men to herself. And so Lady Folly is just a picture of foolishness. He's not picking on women because he also called a woman wisdom. But in this case, it's foolishness. And she calls in and all the simple people come to her. And uh, I think that's ultimately what he's talking about. I started looking around and what I found out is that there is this personified lady who traps you and who shackles you. And it's foolishness. It's folly. It's immorality. It's calling to you and trying to call you in. That's what I found out. And then in verse 27, he says, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another, I'm trying to figure it all out. Life's like a math problem here. Trying to figure it out, add it up one thing to another. I'm trying to find the scheme of things. How does everything work out? Why do people act the way they do? What are the ways of the world? Verse 28, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. I cannot find Uh, the scheme of things. I cannot find out why people act the way they do. I can't figure out people is what he's saying. I can't figure it out. He goes on to say, verse 28, one man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. So he says, I can figure out one guy in a thousand is what he's saying. I'm trying to figure it out the scheme of things. I can get maybe one guy in a thousand and I can get about zero women out of a thousand is what he says here. Now, this isn't a sexist statement. Ladies, not be offended. Is he saying something about women? Well, listen, the percentages aren't that great. If he says I can figure out one one thousandth of the men and zero of the women, he's not really making a statement about your gender. I think he's making a statement about himself. This is his experience. He's saying of the people I've met, this is what I found out. And the Bible teaches that between his concubines and his wives, he had upward of a thousand wives, companions, sexual partners, whatever. 
a thousand. So it's not like he was really trying to figure out the, 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 the peak of, of the gender of the race. He's, he's with godless women. And as Douglas Wilson said, most of his study is done under dimmed lighting uh, with a thousand women. So it's not as if he is really getting to know these women or getting to know these men. And he says, I can't figure out any of them from my personal experience so this is kind of hopeless. I mean, right, this passage has some hopelessness to it. Hey, the smartest man who ever lived pursued wisdom, and this is what he found. Man, I don't get any of you people. I, I've wondered when he said, I understand one in a thousand, I kind of wonder if that one was himself. If he was like saying, I get me, but the rest of you are crazy. I kind of wonder if that's what he means, but that's, that, that's really my idea. I don't, I'm not sure that's out of the Bible. But, but he finds out one thing. Look at the last verse. This alone I found, verse 29, that God made man upright, but they've sought many schemes. This is what I found out. You know, I can't explain to you why the young, some good people die young and some bad people, relatively speaking, live long. I, I can't explain all that. All I know is don't act in a way that, that you know, you're overly righteous so that you, none of this happens to you, because that's not the case. And nobody's out totally righteous anyway, he says. Um, here's an example. I mean, you can judge other people for the way they act. You do the same thing. Here's an example, talking about people behind their back. So he's kind of laying that for us. And he's saying, you know, I really wanted to figure it all out, the scheme of things and wisdom and foolishness. I couldn't find it out. I did find this out, that Lady Folly calls to us that foolishness tries to draw us in. I found that out. But when it came to figuring people out, I, I got one in a thousand on the guys. I got zero of a thousand on the women. I just could not figure it out. But I did figure this out, he says, that God made man upright, and that man chose to go another way after all kinds of schemes. God created Adam and Eve and placed them in a garden of perfection, created upright where everybody could figure everybody out because, because everything was holy and everything was right. But they chased other schemes, and since that time, we've all been scheming. We've all been chasing other things besides God. We've all been listening to Lady Folly. We've all been judging people for stuff we've done. We've all been trying to win God's approval with our righteousness or giving up and just saying, forget it, I'll go to the world. We've all been living this way. That, that, that I do know, is that when things went wrong, it wasn't with God, it was with us. That's what he says. God created us upright. We went the wrong way. And again, it could be a sort of hopeless picture. I mean, he, he says back in, in uh, verse 20, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. At least not in Solomon's time. But after him, there did come one who always did righteous, always did good, and never sinned. You see, God created man upright, verse 29, and man, Adam and Eve, sought many other schemes, and we've done the same thing. But as soon as they fell in chapter 3 of Genesis, in that same chapter, God makes this promise that there is coming one. They listened to the serpent, who is the devil, and they went away from God. But he says there's coming one who will crush the serpent's head. There's coming one who is going to reverse all of this folly, all of this sin, all of this self-righteousness, all of this wickedness, all of this, none of it makes sense. All of this is going on. There's coming one who will turn all of that back. See, out of the Garden of Eden, a river of evil sort of flowed, a river of sin, which we've all drank of. 
and lived in. It's in our hearts. But he said there's coming one that will reverse the effects of what happened in the garden. There's coming one who will take care of all of this. And his name's Jesus Christ. And the Bible calls him in 1 Corinthians, the last Adam. So there is the first Adam who God made upright and he fell. And there is the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus who comes, who is totally righteous, who never sins, and who pays the price for those who sin, who suffers in the place of those who sin, who brings life to those who have experienced death by dying on the cross for our sins, by being buried and by being raised from the dead so that our sins, if we believe in him, our sins can be forgiven. If we believe in him, we can be reconciled to the God that we've walked away from. Man ultimately created upright but fell, and all of us since then have been fallen. And scheming, we've all schemed. We all, the reason we're so hard to figure out is because everything's messed up. Everything's tainted by sin at some level. Now, we recently talked about not being overly conscious of sin, I don't want to be any more conscious of sin than the Bible is. But in this verse, what Solomon says, here's the problem. It's sin. This is what he says. We were created upright and we went our own way. We schemed our own schemes. That's the problem. Now, we don't want to end there or that's depressing. We want to move on and say, but that's not the end of the story. One comes to deal with the problem. One comes to die for our sins. One comes to live a perfect life. If we believe in him, his righteousness is credited to us so that we stand before God in Christ's righteousness, welcome before the Father because of what Jesus has done. Our sins forgiven. We're reconciled. The realm of death has been defeated because Jesus died and came back to life. Eternal separation from God has been closed and has been gapped for those who will believe in Jesus so that we will be in his presence forever after we die in a world that is not like what he describes here, in a world that is completely righteous, where no one sins, in a world where where we comprehend God and see him clearly. There will be more to learn of him, obviously, but where we see him clearly, where there is no lady folly calling out Where there is no, I just don't get it. But we're with God personally. That day is coming. See, because one who did not sin and always did good gave his life for those who sinned. You and me. And by faith in him, we can receive new life in Christ. And the way we approach life, our lifestyle, our grid for life is to be living in the fear of God. That's what he said. Don't try to do this. Don't try to do that. Live in the fear of God. And when we see what Christ did for us on the cross, now sometimes we think funny, what fear? Why would I be fearful of God demonstrating his love for us? Because his character, he's also demonstrating his holiness at the cross. He's pouring out his judgment, which was due us. That's why there's darkened skies and thunder. Something cataclysmic is taking place. Sin is being dealt with. The love of God is being demonstrated. Death is being defeated. Life is coming forth in his resurrection. See, when we see Jesus and his work, it should inspire fear in the sense of our awe, our stunned, our astounded response. Not our familiar, but our amazed that he would do that for us. That he would give his life for us. That he would love us in that way. That he would suffer for us. That is nothing really, I think, is a picture that should produce the fear of God more than the work of Jesus because we find the holiness of God and the grace of God, the mercy of God together in Christ. 
When people saw Jesus act, they were stunned. When Jesus one time, I'll close with this, one time in in the book of Mark, it is in Mark 4, um, Jesus, they're in the middle of a storm. He's in a boat uh, with his disciples. They're in the middle of a storm. Jesus stands up and speaks to the storm, and it instantly dissipates. I mean, can you imagine that? In the middle of a storm, someone stands up and speaks to it, boom, and it stops. And here's what the Bible says. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Now, why were they filled with fear? Because that was awesome. That was astonishing. That was breathtaking. Who is this that speaks? And the entire weather system responds. Listen, if seeing Jesus calm a storm produced fear in those who got it, then how much more those who see the God of glory dealing with our sins eternally on the cross. That is a way more astounding act. How would those respond who see Jesus coming out of the grave alive? How would those respond who see him in his resurrection glory? Well, they they fear as well. In Revelation 1, they see him and they tremble because they see the glory of God. Seeing the work of Christ produces in us an awe and a reverence that is wed with a welcome and a mercy and a love. He welcomes us to a throne of grace. He embraces us with arms of love. And he is the astounding God who has dealt with our sins at the same time in the most astonishing manner possible, the death and resurrection of God himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So we look to the one... We look to the one who is a righteous man, verse 20, who does good, who never sinned, and those who believe in him are welcomed before the Father as those who've never sinned as well. That's astonishing. And that produces the fear of God in us. And that produces the joy of God in us. And that produces the warmth and the love of God in us. And that produces a trust in God in us as well. And that allows us not to live over here being overly righteous, you know, expecting that God must do this because I did that. I'm a good boy. And so I get blessed. God must do this. Like God owes me. It keeps us from there. It keeps us from despair. He says, well, it doesn't matter. Just go party and have fun. God's going to do what he wants to do. It causes us to live here. Fear the Lord. Look to Jesus, the Savior. Trust him. Rely on him. Be secure in his love for you and his care for you based on what he's done for you and trust, trusting that life doesn't make a lot of sense. People, you can't figure them out, but guess what? They can't figure you out either. That's just life. Let's look to Jesus. He's revealed himself to us so that he can be understood in an increasing way. Let's trust that he has all things in control. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.